Dear listeners, yet another episode of the Through the Banner podcast. My name is Casper McLeod and back with me on this episode to review Melbourne's drought-breaking grand final win, the grand final in Perth. An old friend of the Through the Banner podcast joining us once again. It's Patty Grinlay. Patty, I hope you're doing well. And I hope that you had a relaxing Saturday evening. It was your first time in quite a few years that the Tigers haven't been in the grand final. Must have been relaxing, mate. Somewhat, yeah. Uh, G'day, Casper. Um, Good grand final, wasn't it? Really good. Wasn't so sure about the long lead up throughout the day. Um, Couldn't have, it felt very stressful even as a neutral so I can't imagine what you would be going through as a doggies or D supporter but I think we got a bit of a lockdown treat really especially with those first three quarters before it blew out the fantastic grand final let's discuss the D's 57 years of pain washed away in two hours of football a phenomenal win in the end I want to ask you Patty how did the D's do it yeah it was a it was a hell of a game, um, just from end to end, momentum swings throughout the first three quarters. Obviously, Melbourne jumping out to the early, early lead, the dogs pegging them back. Melbourne getting a spurt on, the dogs returning fire, and then that explosion late in the third term when Melbourne just looked imperious. I've never seen a team that dominant in a finals game you know, in some time. Like, that was ridiculously good football. Um I think you were looking at two pretty evenly matched footy clubs, especially the Dogs with their stacked midfield. Melbourne, likewise. I think that Gorn, Petrarca, Oliver trio, it's probably three of the best 10 players in the AFL, and that's probably being a little bit disingenuous towards those three players. So I think what they did to, to the Dogs was just they, they made them accountable running back the other way. And the Bulldogs have too many front-running midfielders, I think, to withhold that amount of force for an extended period of time. Uh, the likes of probably Hunter, Bailey Smith, Caleb Daniel, guys who are probably more midfield roles, ball-hungry roles, were forced to be more accountable as the these ran rampant through them. And they just couldn't go with them. Um, Melbourne kept on raising the, the gears. The dogs could return serve for an interim period, but as soon as as soon as soon those three goals were kicked in about 35 seconds, that was Curtin's. You saw the heads drop all over the ground. And from that moment onwards, it was Melbourne's premiership. So, yeah, cracking game of footy. Um, I think we, we may have been robbed of a fantastic final quarter, but it wouldn't have been resemblant of just how dominant Melbourne have been this year and have been through this September period. Like, what a coronation. I want to ask you, before I talk about why I think that these won, which grand final performance do you think was more more of a statement, more of a drought-breaking statement. Was it the Cats in 07 or was it the Ds in 2021? You'd have to go with 07, surely. Any any time you win by 114 points is a statement, let alone in a grand final. Um, So, but I think it's different this year especially because the Dogs were so good through the final series. I think we all sort of sat there on premium final weekend watching Melbourne win by as much as they did, thinking it was Melbourne's premiership to lose. And then the Bulldogs came out on Saturday night against Port Adelaide and blew them out of the water. So it was a relatively evenly matched grand final. Yes, Melbourne were the favourites and did end up winning. But I think, the obviously, the Geelong 100-point win in a grand final, like that's 
unheard of. So I think you'll have to give it to the Cats on that account, Casper. Yeah, fair. I think I'll go with the Cats as well. Uh, although Port Adelaide were an interstate team playing in Melbourne. Melbourne had their home ground advantage kind of taken away from them. You know, even, yeah. even though the Deeds and the Dogs are two Melbourne-based teams, had the game been at the MCG, the Demons would have been with the home ground advantage considering the Dogs have Marvel Stadium as their home ground. But I get what you mean. And yes, I do agree with you. A 119-point win trumps a 74-point win. I said 114, didn't I? That's shocking. Right. It's, all, it's all right. You were within a goal. You were within a goal. Let it pass. Don't worry. There was a moment during the third quarter. I did, we didn't learn about this until afterwards. Where apparently Gorn went to the bench and talked to Simon Goodwin and said, we should get Jackson in there in the middle because clearly something wasn't working with Gorn in the middle. So they put Jackson in there and they won within like five minutes as six center bounce clearances went the way that these something like that it was incredible bang 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 all of a sudden a close contest became a blowout an inspired choice jackson jumped all over stefan martin now i wonder if stefan martin was fully fit i wonder if he was fully fit oh i think steph martin's a veteran um who was always going to be in trouble against the gorn and jackson combo I think with Luke, you're probably looking at a guy who's gonna be up there for the best one of the best men, one of the best big men in the league in the next two to three seasons. And when you look at that next to Max Gorn, but you're spot on. Um, and Max Gorn was right. Like he was having a, a cracking match, but clearly not as dominant as he'd had as he'd been the previous week. Agreed. And the, dog, and the D's needed something at this point of the game. And Jackson's work below below his knees for a bloke who's two metres tall is just obscene. Like, he was freakish. That handball, I think it was off off to, I don't know if it was off to Oliver, but it was in the chain of the Oliver goal. Um, that's just unicorn stuff. You can't really teach that. He was, he was exceptional um, with Jackson. And I think he's got real star power in future. Yep, couldn't agree with you more. Now, for every winner in a grand final, there's unfortunately a loser. The dogs looked like they were in a great position midway through the third quarter. I actually texted. I sent a text through to three or four of my friends when the dogs had to a 19-point lead, and I said, D's are done. I said the D's are done, which might have been the too soonest, too soon text to ever to have ever too soon. But the reason why I said that was because the signs were all over the ground. The dogs were running them ravaged. However, I will say this. I think the reason why the dogs lost is because a similar problem that appeared around 21, 22, 23, and Matthew Lloyd pointed this out as well, appeared once again, and it was big-bodied opposition midfielders taking advantage of them in the center. So Bailey Fritz got the goal against the run of play. Next three or four center clearances, dogs looked like they couldn't stop a tissue paper that's how that's how weak they were in those center clearances. And when you have Petrarca and Oliver in there and Jackson as well, big body midfielders and Ruck who can kick a ball 60 meters, you give them 10 inches and they'll make they'll punish you, Melbourne. And the exact same thing happened to the dogs around 21 when Jake Stringer took them by the throat. And the exact same thing happened on the weekend with Petrarca especially. And so I don't know. It, it, they managed to, as Matthew Lloyd pointed out, they managed to stop it in finals football. 
you know, the, the, the Lions couldn't really get that going. The Bombers couldn't really get that going in the wet and the power looked nothing like it, but the D's just exploited it. You know, as soon as they got a whiff of a whiff of momentum, they just ran them ragged. So it's something that's just something that they got to work on. And I reckon it starts with the rock. No offense to Stefan, to Stefan Martin and Tim English, but I just wonder if Stefan Martin, considering he's a veteran, can he get any better? Or is this the best that he's going to get? Probably, probably can't get much better. Tim English, undoubtedly a great ruckman who can go down forward, kick a bag of four or five. I think he kicked seven against the Bombers in 2020. But the problem is, is that whenever he comes up against big bodied ruckmen like Brody Grundy or Max Gorn, he just gets torn to shreds. So either he needs 10 more kilograms of muscle on him, or you get a bigger bodied ruckman. I don't know. I can't think of anyone off the top of my head who would fit that mold currently on the you know trade table, but maybe you go to the draft someone, you know, get someone who's already pretty big or get someone who can, you can put a lot of meat onto their bones, you know? So how about you, Patty? Why do the dogs fluff it? Well, just on your, um, your Tim English example, I think that, they're very prepared for the next step because Sam Darcy is a father-son pick available to them, expected to go in the top three. Um, so on that note, I think the dogs for tall depths, like they've got Jamara, picked one last year. Sam Darcy is going to go two or three this year. As far as tall stocks go, I think they'll be okay. It's just about what they're going to do with Tim English because, I mean, as you're saying, continuing on your point, he was just just ran, ran through. Like the, Melbourne were always going to have the advantage there, but it was so pronounced. Um, the midfield, I think the dogs were sort of railroaded with Adam Trelaw into going with this like massively stacked midfield, but they're all ball getters. They're all guys who you want the ball in the hands of. McRae's a good kick. Bontempelli's an amazing player, like great kick, can kick goals. Trelaw's kick three in the grand final, had 27. Josh Dunkley in and under. They don't have necessarily much to stop the Petrarca Oliver double punch. And it is a ridiculous double punch. Like having two of those guys, big midfielders, strong. Clayton Oliver's finally blossomed into this sort of Crips like player who can burst through contests and actually kick the ball. He used to just handle it. He'd just give it off looking for someone on the outside, but he's actually backing himself to burst from tackles and kick long. And it is butchering the opposition. Um, he and Petrarca playing as well as they did was that's your midfield battle gone. Like Bontempelli and Trelaw kicked six between them, but were clearly outplayed by Track and Oliver. It was just insane. So the dogs, they've got an issue with, in the ruck. They have an issue, I think, down back because their second defender of either like Cordy or Gardner, it didn't work clearly. They get 140 points kicked on them in the grand final. Um, you know, Fritch kicks six, so that's a medium-sized forward. Ben Brown kicks three-two, probably should have had at least four. Um, Petrarca goes down there, adds, adds a couple more. Um, so you've got issues there. So I don't think the dogs will necessarily drop off. I think this grand final was a step too far. Melbourne were clearly, I think, all all year the better best team in the competition. At points, you had questions whether the Bulldogs or Port Adelaide or Geelong or Brisbane even would leap up and take that mantle. But Melbourne have been up there since the start and this is what they deserve really. So the dogs, it's not apparent where it's going to come from. 
but it'll be one of those guys, hopefully, for, for their sake, who takes the next step. So maybe a Buku Kamas type guy who's made his debut this year, intercept defender, tall, reasonably raw. Maybe he can develop into something. Maybe English can go back even. Like there's, they're not going to be able to beat the Ds on grand final day again if it gets to that point ever again um, with this current 22. They're a very good side, but Melbourne... I think are quite resemblant of that sort of Richmond, Hawthorne, Geelong list build where you get close to the precipice, you don't quite get there. And then you add five or six other players and all of a sudden you're one of the generation's best footy clubs. And I can, I'll, I'm happy to talk about that further because I won't shut up about it. But as far as the dogs go, they need improvement in the back line. They need improvement in the ruck, but it's been a very good year for them. It's unfortunate they ran into Melbourne. Well, Let's let's discuss, right? And I know we we agreed on, you know, we talked about a uh, a structure for this episode before I hit record. But let's kind of shake it up a little bit. I want to ask you for your tip for who's going to make it to the grand final in twenty twenty two, and then we'll uh, want to ask you why, and I'll give my prediction, and I'll tell you why. Yeah, right. Um, so I think Melbourne get back there again. I just don't think there's a team who can go with them as good as this. My thinking is sort of similar to the Hawthorne and Richmond quote-unquote dynasty, uh, where they've got very well-built teams. Like Richmond really should have made the 2018 grand final. They got Mason Coxed in the prelim, and that was the only thing that really stopped them from four grand finals in a row. So I think you've, you've got... Melbourne, as a, at this point, you know, a year out, a pretty comfortable. I'm confident that they'll be able to be get get back there. The other one I'm going to say Brisbane, just because I think there's a substantial amount of upside that hasn't really been touched quite yet. Cam Rayner misses the entirety of the year with an ACL injury. Eric Hipwood misses the entirety of the back end so with the, an ACL injury. So he'll hopefully be fit by about round eight, round seven maybe even before. You've got a guy like Zach Bailey, who I love, who's this amazing hybrid mid-forward who can kick three goals a game and have 20 disposals. So I think it's sort of your, your Aldi Toby Green. Um, you've got Nakai Cockatoo, hopefully with the full preseason behind him. Oscar McInerney's blossoming, blossoming into that uh, that Ruckman role. Joe Danaher with another year at Brisbane under his first year at Brisbane under his belt. So... I think they've got the right amount of push. And because they've been so poor in finals, they've gone like three top four finishes and they've been out in straight sets twice. But it's worth noting also with Brisbane, an interesting fact that every time they've been knocked out in knocked out of the finals so far, it's been by a team that would go on to make the grand final. So obviously in 2020 when they lost the prelim, but also in 2019 against the Giants, and this year against the Western Bulldogs. So, but they all yeah. lost. They all lost. They all lost. But what I what I take out of that is Brisbane have been the third best team essentially, or close enough to the third or fourth best team in the comp for three years straight. And I think next year is your make or break because I don't think Geelong will be there there to compete as heavily. Maybe they'll be there and thereabouts. I don't think they're going to be as dominant. Richmond came twelfth. It remains to be seen whether they can jump back up. So I think the field has sort of parted for Brisbane to really make hay. They've had their experience. They've played in three final series. 
this has to be the one, or there has to, or there'll be questions asked. You'd think. So I think Melbourne and Brisbane will be my early tip. Oh, that's boring. Melbourne and Brisbane are also my tip. Um, I'll explain why. Melbourne looked unstoppable, unstoppable. Watching them in that last quarter, it reminded me of a. Uh, it reminded me of a piece of commentating from the 2007 AFL Grand Final, which was Geelong are playing the second best team in the competition this year and they are smashing them. It felt exactly like that. Melbourne played the second best team in the competition this year and they smashed them. 16 out of the last 17 goals. That is absolutely incredible. And I expect Melbourne to have another a 2008-esque Geelong year in 2022. Brisbane, they are coming to that age with the age demographic where they can, I mean, I mean, like really, really, really compete for the premiership because now they've just been kind of competing for the top four. Now it's time to take that next step. During the final series, their lack of multiple tall forward options, aside from Joe Danaher, really exposed them when Joe Danaher had two really quiet uh, quiet final uh, finals matches. But in 2022, you'll get Rayner back, and then about 10 weeks later or so, you get Hipwood back. And assuming that they are fit and firing, fingers crossed for Lions fans that that happens, then they should. Because even when they missed Rayner and Hipwood for large portions of the season, they still were the highest scoring team of the home and away season by far. And then midfield is still awesome with Lockie Neal staying. So I reckon, fingers crossed, <laughs> knock on wood, I reckon Brisbane, it's their time to take that next step. And I reckon Brisbane and Melbourne are going to meet. Who's going to win? Early prediction, I'm tipping the Lions to win just because it is really difficult to go back-to-back. It's really, really challenging to go back-to-back. And plus, I kind of like the symmetry of two Victorian teams winning the only grand finals in history not being played in Victoria and then all of a sudden the grand final being back in Victoria and it being won by a non-Victorian team. I kind of like that symmetry. I kind of like that symmetry. About time the Premiership Cup goes back to Queensland anyways. Um, I don't think Geelong's going to make it. I don't think Port's going to make it. I don't think the Dogs are going to make it because it's really rare for a team to get smashed in the finals one year and then come back and make the grand final the year after that. The Eagles did it in 2017, 2018. They got hammered by the Giants by about 11 goals in the semifinal. Obviously won the premiership the year after that. Um, Collingwood and Geelong did it 2009, 2010, and then 2010, 2011 by beating each other, smashing each other, and then obviously winning the premiership the next season. But aside from those two, I can't think of any like you think of the crows in 2017 haven't made finals since then you think of the giants in 2019 haven't made finals since then you think port adelaide in 2007 how long did it take them to make finals football again after that grand final it's really rare for a team to lose by 50 points or more and make the grand final the year after that so i don't think it's going to happen because it demoralizes teams right port Geelong, especially Geelong, because Geelong's their their list is going to age. Their list is just going to keep on getting older. Like they're not going to be the dad squads anymore. They're going to be the granddad squad. So, yeah, 
I'm thinking Melbourne, Brisbane, Sydney, possibly, but the problem is they're still too young. Giants, possibly, they're still really young. The Bombers aren't near it, anywhere near it. And I can't see another team making a jump from just outside the top eight to the premiership or to the grand final like Melbourne did this year, just because I don't trust St. Kilda enough yet. I don't trust Fremantle enough yet. I don't trust Carlton enough yet. And part of me also really doesn't want Carlton to win the premiership because if they win the premiership in 2022, I am going to be immensely sad. It's going to be a horrible, horrible, horrible day. Arguably the worst day of my life. It is going to be, it's going to be absolutely shocking I reckon half of Melbourne is just going to be so depressed if Carlton wins the premiership again sorry Carlton fans no offense but I'm really I've you know in a kind of macabre way I've kind of been enjoying the mediocrity that you guys have been showing over the past few seasons you know as an Essendon supporter kind of keeps me comfort that Carlton haven't been doing better than us I don't know anyways on to the next talking point Christian Petrarca he had for about 20 minutes after the grand final the uh, the record for number of disposals in a grand final at 40. However, apparently, apparently somebody gave him an extra handball he didn't have and so got taken off of him. But hey, equal highest amount is still pretty good at 39 disposals, I think tied with Simon Black in 2003, I believe. So a phenomenal effort from uh, Christian Petrarca. I want to ask you, though, Paddy, because there are a lot of other great Melbourne players as well. I mean, Bailey Fritz, the highest number of goals kicked by an individual player in a grand final since Darren Jarman single-handedly broke St. Kilda Hearts in 1997. Max Gorn, Luke Jackson, phenomenal games by them. Brayshaw had a great game. Salem had a great game. There are so many great players. Was Petrarca for the choice of the Norm Smith correct or was it not? Was somebody robbed? It was yeah, Petrarca was such an obvious choice. Um, he was just ridiculous. Like that's the boring response, but that's the right response. Um, look, I, I don't. I think he and probably Martin last year have been the clearest Norm Smith medalists we've seen in some time. Um, like that was. He he was he, his second quarter. He wasn't was probably the only one where he wasn't the best player on the ground for that quarter. Um, like he was just obscene and I think it sort of repurposes the AFL landscape in future because we've all, we've seen all these discussions about you go to the draft to get your big tall players your, your key position guys people who can play multiple positions so the King brothers and Team English I suppose perfect example but what we've seen more recently with Richmond's success um even that Eagles flag, you can talk about potentially Elliot Yo a little bit if you want. And definitely this year with Petrarca and Bontempelli as well in the grand final and Oliver as well. The team, the player that will win you a grand final in, once you get there is the 188 to 192 centimetre midfielder who can kick goals, damaging going forward. If you can get that player, the Crips type, and build successfully around him over a number of years, that's probably the way that you're going to win in future. I have a lot of respect for the King brothers, and I think they're both going to be stars in their own right. But I look at a team, I look at Ben King five years down the track compared to Christian Petrarca now, and I know which one I would pick in a grand final. 
And even like you can Bailey Fritch is a perfect example. It wasn't a, it wasn't Ben Brown or Aaron Norton who kicked six in in a grand final. It was it was Bailey Fritch who wasn't who was ignored in a number of drafts and wasn't probably I didn't think wasn't even in the top two best players on the ground because of how good Christian Salem was, but that's probably a less popular opinion. But he just made every post a winner. Like he was he led hard. That that goal where he's jumped up to try in a pack mark, nearly taken a contested grab, hit the ground like a cat, picked it up, ran into the open goal, and that brought and that started that massive demon explosion. I thought so. Yeah, I think Petrarca, obvious choice for Norm Smith, and probably has a few list managers with the drafts not to, not so far away, probably rethinking where they want to go. Yep, fair point, mate. Uh, Petrarca, who else was it going to be? Who else was it going to be? As soon as he kicked that Peter McKenna-esque goal from the boundary line, if you don't mind it, dribbling through beautiful like a work of art, Picasso couldn't have painted it better and Jesus wept looking at that. That was how beautiful that goal was. And as soon as that happened, I reckon the dogs are in trouble. I reckon the dogs were in trouble. He single-handedly, well, not single-handedly, with, with Luke Jackson in tow, kind of like Batman and Robin, with uh, with Petrarca being Batman and Luke Jackson being Robin, uh, single-handedly took the game from under the Joker's feet. It was a fantastic effort and well-deserved and honestly kind of the um, kind of unfortunate part of being on such a star-studded team but if he wasn't on such a star-studded team, he would have swept the Brownlow this year. Would have absolutely crushed it. He would have crushed it. You're not looking as convinced. You're not looking as convinced. I reckon he would have crushed it. If it wasn't for Oliver and Gorn, I reckon he would have absolutely crushed it. Um, oh, I do want to ask you your opinion because we didn't get you on for the Brownlow, discussing the uh, Brownlow a few episodes ago. I want to ask you, Ollie Wines, was he the correct choice or not? It probably was, but I think that says more about the Brownlow than Ollie Wines, which is no disrespect to him. He's a very, very good player. He's probably top 15, but I wouldn't know many lists of the top 50 written now where Ollie Wines would be top 10, let alone top five, let alone the best player in the comp. Um, yeah, it's a midfielder's award. We, we've known that for ages, and Ollie's had a very, very good year, but if you compare him to obviously Petrarca and like, you know, if, if the Bulldogs had have won that game, Bontempelli would have been the obvious normally as well. Cause 20, what, 24 and three, like he, he was, he was, he was as dominant for periods as Petrarca was. It's just that Petrarca did it better. Um, but yeah, I think, look, I think it's a sort of like Matt Prudis-esque Brownlow where it's not necessarily the best player in the competition. It's the guy, it's a very, very good player who's had a very, very good year and is also playing a game style, which is very attractive to umpires to give votes. And being an umpire, you're going to notice a bloke if he has it 34 times and kicks a goal or two and sets about five more up. Like, you're also going to notice a Petrarca type who breaks the game open. I think it's just a difference in valuing games like, Ollie Wines plays three vote, three vote games. Christian Petrarca and Dustin Martin play five vote, three vote games. If that makes sense. Like they're so clearly the best player on the ground. Yeah, fair enough, mate. Fair enough. Now let's discuss 16 out of 17 goals from 19 points down 
to 74 points in front in the space of 35 to 40 minutes. I can't think of a bigger turnaround in grand final history. We've seen some big ones in 2011. It was something like a 50-point turnaround. Geelong coming back to beat Collingwood in 2020. It was Geelong on the other side, up by about 20 points and losing by 31 in the end to your Tigers. But there was none. And of course, sorry, 1984, who can forget as an Essendon supporter, down by about 23 points at three-quarter time against the Hawks, only to win by 24 points, thanks to the mastermind of Kevin Sheedy. But I cannot think of a more dominant turnaround in grand final history. It started off as the dogs crumbling a little bit, and then the entire foundation collapsed from underneath their foot as the demon's landslide just swept away every single hope that they had, every single dream, every single aspiration, every single rainbow, lollipop, and pink fluffy unicorn that the dogs had lined up, ready to ride ride back to Melbourne on, were completely swept away by the demon landslide. It was a phenomenal performance by Melbourne. And I want to ask you, was that the most impressive 40 minutes of football you have ever seen? Because I know my answer. Recency bias is going to play into this. Um, but, yeah, it was pretty amazing. Um, I was comparing it with even, like, the most comprehensive football I've seen in a grand final where I've been able to qualify it, like, been able to actually watch it and can consider it in my in my lifetime has been like was otherwise this was the 2019 grand final with the richmond giants one but that happened slowly like you could sense that richmond were on top from about halfway through the first quarter and it was just they just stacked it up um this was different because it was such an even game and it wasn't even that goodwin like threw the magnets around or put you know like let's let's go gone full forward and gone kicks five or you know we'll, we'll put mcdonald back will open the forward line for Fritch and, and Ben Brown. And that didn't happen. What happened was just Melbourne just kept on going and it just, they just exploded. It just, it was bonkers. Like I've never seen like an end to a quarter. That was just insane. Like Jackson goes into the middle shore and that's very significant, but it doesn't, it's not the only thing. And they would have actually, if you look back on it, sorry to get sidetracked, but they were on again before Bontempelli tackles Petrarca just before three-quarter time. It could have been four and 40 seconds. It was just a beggar's belief. And it wouldn't have happened without the 666, sure. But from that moment in that third quarter, pretty much onwards from where Daniel puts Gorn into the AstroTurf, it was Melbourne was just amazing. And I think it says it says substantially more, I think, about Melbourne than the Western Bulldogs. Like, the dogs didn't stop. They didn't just completely turn off the controller. Melbourne just went to another level, which I haven't seen a team compete at in living memory. To be fair, that's only 20 years of living memory. But it was, yeah, the most comprehensive football performance I've seen. The only quarter that I can think of was far away from a grand final uh, quarter. It was 2011 round six at the then called Etihad Stadium. It was the Gold Coast Suns' first game in Melbourne and the Bombers in the first quarter put up 15 goals for 94 to one behind on the Gold Coast Suns. It was the highest scoring quarter in Essendon's history and I believe the highest scoring first quarter in the history of the competition. But 
That was against an expansion team. First time they were playing at that stadium with so many young, so many young kids. They might as well called the, called them the high school team. Up against a team that would go and play finals football in 2011. This, on the other hand, was up against a team who had played three finals in the past four weeks. And out of those three, two of them were smashings. Like they smashed the Bombers and they tore the power to shreds. They absolutely tore them to shreds. So to do that in that game, when all the momentum was against them, and it came down to a moment, it came down to a missed handball at center half back for the dogs, where the handball to Bailey Smith missed him by about maybe 15 centimeters, 20 centimeters, wasn't much. It just went behind him and the deeds pounced. I think it was Harms who then sent it into Fritz. And all of a sudden, bang, 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 bang. Dogs were gone. So because of the turnaround and the margin that it ended up being, compared to how close it was, yeah, I think it's the greatest turnaround, the greatest 40 minutes of football I've ever seen, the greatest... 40 minutes of grand final footy I've ever seen. Like, it's probably the biggest turnaround since Carlton came back in 1970 to beat Collingwood, you know, from seven goals down to win by seven points. Sorry, Collingwood fans, for bringing that up, by the way. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I just think that it was, a, it was a fantastic effort from the Demons. And, honestly, it was so scary watching them. It was so scary watching them. And it was scary to think of, if they weren't playing the dogs, if the power had somehow beaten the dogs, imagine how much Port would have lost by. Or if Brisbane held on against the dogs in uh, in Brisbane, beating the power, how much would Brisbane have been beaten by? Because for 16 weeks of the year, the Ds and the dogs were the top two teams in the competition. Sometimes it was the Ds first and the dogs second, sometimes the way around. But honestly, it was so impressive. So yeah. I think uh, it was honestly, it was the most unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. It was, it was honestly, it was terrifying watching it. It was literally terrifying. But yeah, hell froze over. Fantastic win for the Demons. I'm shocked that none of, I haven't heard a commentator yet use that phrase yet. Hell froze over for Melbourne's win. I mean, come on, the pun's right there. Get your pun game in order. Come on. If, 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 if Bruce McEvaney, could say the eagle has landed in 2018 surely somebody could have said that hell frozen over in 2021 it makes no sense but anyways i want to ask you every grand final has a great moment several great moments that will be remembered forever by the winning teams fans but i want to ask as a mutual supporter which was your favorite moment of the night i think i'll go through three things I think for the for the game, it was that image after Oliver's just kicked that goal before three-quarter time of him wheeling away one finger in the air while Luke Jackson is just losing his absolute mind behind him. Um, and that was the moment where you thought, like, because oh, obviously like, the dogs are still a chance in this type of free-flowing back-and-forth game, but that was the moment where I think, like, the Ds started to think this wasn't, we weren't expecting this to, like, we're in a really good spot. Um, 
that's your, your sort of dusty pulling at the jersey goal. Um, if you, because I'm a Richmond supporter, I have to qualify everything through Richmond experience. There you go. Um, <laughs> but it was ju- just to like, because it, it, it sort of proved as well, like the players were in as much disbelief as everyone watching what Melbourne had just done. And the dogs players in the back of the shot with their heads, heads dropping, you really got a sense that they wouldn't have a say from that point onwards, which is exactly what happened. And then afterwards, the image of Michael Hibbard with the cup in hand, like charging towards supporters after, after the presentation was pretty cool. Um, really, I love watching this, the outpouring of joy um, Cosie Pickett also with his family, um, just embracing them by the by the boundary side. That was that was a really touching moment. But I don't know. I really liked Angus Brayshaw's going back with the flight mark. It's a sort of underrated moment because by this point the game is over. But Brayshaw's career has been marked by this concussion after concussion after yeah. concussion, and it sort of wrecked not the potential necessarily because he's still a very good player. But the dude came third in the brown line pretty recently. Like, he was a star, and he sort of, you know, he went pick three behind Petrarca in the 2014 draft that set Melbourne up for this. He's a prodigious talent, and it just hasn't quite worked out for him as much as it has for track, obviously. But he was outstanding on the wing, playing as that sort of, like, defensive, hard... Sorry, ladies and gentlemen, that's the problem when you're me and you accidentally do something stupid. Anyways, Patty, you were saying... But, yeah, but Brayshaw's got this great as a winger and he protects space works hard runs hard doesn't often get reward with disposals and scoreboard but he was great in the grand final and he takes this amazing running back with the flight mark jumping into dead space head first with the helmet on that shows just how many concussions and how much risk there is um so i think that really just signified the melbourne approach that there, there's no ego it's all for one um and one for all so yeah, stoked for him. Was really impressed by that in a dead grand final at that point. So I, I, I love that moment. For me, I love watching when a team has the grand final wrapped up four minutes ago and the coach can relax. I loved watching Simon Goodwin on the boundary line hugging his players and hugging his assistant coaches. You could see the emotions welling up. I loved all of that. I loved all of it. It was phenomenal to see. It's so touching to always see that. You saw, you know, scenes with Lee Matthews at Collingwood and you saw it with uh, Chris Scott first year at Geelong and Damian Hardwick and Luke Beveridge when they broke their respective droughts. It's just so heartwarming. And my favourite moment aside from that was when that moment where Melbourne supporters could truly erupt with joy on the final siren and you saw what it meant to these players, that they broke 57 years of heartache. It's not just for their own careers, but you could feel that they had truly lifted a curse, the Norm Smith curse from that football club. And I just love seeing Max Gorn and Ed Langdon embrace each other. That was just, it was great to see. And it was great to see Petrarca running about Oh, it was just great to see. I love watching that. I absolutely adore watching that. Now, I want to ask you, 2022, if the grand final is back in Victoria, fingers crossed, knock on wood. Nighttime grand final, yes, no, why? You are shaking your head like a dog biting a bone. Why not? 
No, it's no, it's not terrible, but it's ah. Uh, look, I can be convinced towards a Twilight Grand Final, um, but the day Grand Final, you can wake up, you can you know have a great lunch, you can have a kick outside at halftime. Like it, it's it's a day thing, and you also get to celebrate afterwards. And I think that obviously it's been difficult with COVID, but we've played the Grand Final for two straight years in as normal as you can be during a pandemic states. I think we've sort of been robbed and I think the cities of Brisbane and Perth to a lesser extent, because it was a Western standard time, technically it was a twilight grand final. Um, we've robbed those cities of the sort of afterglow of the, the fans spilling out of the stadium into the city at, at about, you know, like sort of five, like six, seven o'clock, you know, going out for dinner, going out to the pub, going to bars and celebrating. Like that's what should happen. And having been lucky enough to have gone to the 2019 grand final, I can tell you about walking out of, walking out of the ground, hanging around a little bit, taking the afterglow and then going down Swan Street in Richmond to the London Tavern where they're replaying the grand final and you still can get home before midnight. Like it's, it's an event, it's an all day event. And I think holding it at nighttime takes away that afterglow period. And we end up waking up the next morning and we're already talking about trade news. So I think it's a lost opportunity. I think you can maybe have a four o'clock start, but I don't think that night grand finals are gonna be much good. Let's, let's hope that it's in a, a COVID free environment or a relatively COVID free environment. Um, if you can get a hundred thousand people to the MCG, have started at two thirty. There's no reason. I don't think there's an overbearing reason to change that. Yeah, I agree with you. The listeners, if they listen to this podcast, which they should do, every episode is a great episode to listen to. And yes, I'm biased when I say that, but I don't care. It's my podcast. I'm allowed to. I'm allowed to uh, promote it any way I want to. Go and listen to this episode, the last episode if you want to hear my thoughts on the nighttime grand final going forward, spoiler alert, I'm not a big fan. But I want to ask you this. Interstate grand finals, it's at the MCG contractually until I think 2058. At least it was before this year's grand final was moved. I want to ask you though, should that contract be broken? There was, I think Billy Brown was said maybe every four and five years interstate maybe every other year interstate, maybe maybe every 10 years interstate. And we can, you know, have one in Brisbane, have one in Perth, have one in, why not Alice Springs at this point? I want to ask you your opinion. Should the grand final always be in Melbourne henceforth, unless, unless a situation like a pandemic throws things, throws a spanner in the work? It's a really interesting debate. Um... I think there's grounds potentially to do a sort of NFL system where you have a traveling Super Bowl, slash in this case, grand final. Um, doesn't matter. So not a home, home ground advantage. So at the start of the year, we know that Adelaide, for instance, is going to have the grand final. I don't know when they exactly announce it, but I know it's not drawn on home ground advantage. Because in two successive years, the entertainment has been really really good and this i don't know if i'm this is an unpopular opinion or not but especially this year 
the significant WA flavour, having Baker Boy, John Butler, uh, Stella Donnelly was up there. I love Stella Donnelly. Um, and I forget the, the most of the names, but it was entertaining. Um, and even Birds of Tokyo and um, there you go, Eskimo Joe. They were great. It was really good. And they had that really homegrown local flavour, which was really enjoyable. It was great to see per Brisbane and then Perth sort of personalise the grand final. So I think there's definitely grounds for an argument. I just don't think it'll happen. Um, especially now that they, they've had it twice. I think what's more likely to happen is that you'll see Dreamtime um, held in other states from year to year. I think you'll see, like Darwin was exceptional. Dreamtime in Perth was amazing. Um, I think that'll go around. I think you'll see those sort of big ticket games maybe go to other states. I don't think you'll see the grand final though. I want to ask you this then. Should Dreamtime uh, be shared? depending on which state is holding it. So if, for example, South Australia holding it and at the Adelaide Oval, should one of the South Australian teams gain right to hold it against someone else? I don't think so, but I don't think it's a blanket ban on having other clubs do something else with it. I think Richmond and Essendon, have, they've been doing it already for 15 years. Kevin Sheedy's brainchild, the idea that the, um, the club's colours make up the indigenous flag. I think, I think you, you must. I think dream time at the wherever must always be between Richmond and Essendon. I think every other club that plays are more than welcome to put their own spin on it, and they have, and we've seen it happen already. Um, but I think as far as dream time goes, I think that slumped into the um, Collingwood Essendon Anzac Day rule of. You can do whatever you want in other states, but we must always have Collingwood and Eston playing that team. Interesting, interesting. Um, I just looked it up. NFL, current NFL stadiums by capacity, according to Wikipedia, the biggest stadium can hold just over 82,000 people, about 82,500 people. Uh, and that one is in New Jersey, MetLife Stadium. And the smallest in terms of capacity is Soldier Field in Chicago, 61,500 people. If you want a big event like this, like the AFL Grand Final, you have to have stadiums, I think, at minimum 50,000 people or more, which means around Australia, there's the MCG, there's Marvel Stadium, there's... Optus Stadium in Perth. Stadium Australia is still around, isn't it? In Sydney? I think so. Probably called ANZ. And I think the Gabba for the Olympics has been upgraded at 50,000 people. Four stadiums. That's it. You can't have it. You cannot have it at the moment. At a Gabba, in, in any normal year, at a stadium like the Gabba, we can only have 42,000 people. You can't. It can't be done. Surely not. And surely you can't have it in Sydney where the biggest footy, and I mean stadium used for footy, not ANZ Stadium where the players don't like to play. Footy, it's 42,000 people at the SCG or 21,000 people at Giant Stadium. You can't have it. I mean, surely not. 
Surely not. And surely you can't have it in Tasmania, 10,000 people. You, it, it has to be at a big enough stadium. Surely. I'm sorry, I forgot to mention Adelaide Oval, over 50,000 people. But I reckon it should be, if it is going to be moved away from the MCG every five years or so, every 10 years or so, have it at either Optus Stadium in Perth or the Adelaide Oval in Adelaide. Have it between those three states because those are footy predominant states. They are footy predominant states. So I think they, it should stay in predominant AFL territory because imagine in a non-COVID affected year saying that the AFL is going to have the grand final in Sydney or is going to have the grand final in Brisbane. That's like the NRL saying, yeah, we're going to have the grand final in Melbourne. It makes no sense. So I'm just saying it should be predominantly in Melbourne for the foreseeable future, if it is going to be moved, maybe to Perth and Adelaide every five years or so. Every five years or so. Uh, now, just now, I messed up the ending of the previous episode, so I am just going to double-check. I am just going to double-check. Uh, just going to double-check the topics, because I don't want to have to stop and then start again. I've already done that once today. Um, okay, yep, nope, it's done. Thank you, Patty for joining once again on an episode of the Through the Banner podcast. Mate, the Tigers are kingmakers in this offseason with the amount of draft capital that you possess. It is a fascinating position for you guys to go on, and it is going to be interesting to see what you do with it. I want to ask quickly, go to the draft or get in ready-made players? Go to the draft, baby. I like it. I like it. I like it. Go the go the Geelong route before 2018. Don't go the Hawthorne route after 2015. Go, yeah, go to draft. Great idea. And thank you, dear listener, for listening to this episode of the Through the Banner podcast. Uh, hope you enjoyed listening. And until then, get vaccinated. Don't be a Muppet. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>